We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. Finishing up chapter 8 today. Let me read it to you. This is the word of the Lord. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Garadans, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the way, the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would now open up the scriptures that, Lord, you would help us to understand what it says and how it ministers to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the world is flat. I'm sure of it. Now, before you start thinking, man, our pastor's lost his mind, let me explain. Our world has gotten very, very flat in the last 200 years. It has been flattened. See, the way it used to be is that the world was understood to have things that were unexplainable. There was mystery. There was supernatural. There were things that we just couldn't wrap our minds around. But post-Renaissance, post-scientific revolution, the working assumption in our world is that everything is explainable by processes, by physical explanations. And this has flattened our world. To the point where it doesn't look anything like the world that Christ was walking around in. You see, this idea that there's always an explanation and only an explanation via science is the predominant presupposition of our entire world. So let me ask you this. Can science prove that there is a thing such as love? It can't. Are there things that science can't prove? Absolutely. Are there things that we think we know that, guess what, were the opposite of a few years ago? So yes, our world has been flattened, and it's because of a a belief, a, a way of understanding that is at odds with the biblical model. The Bible agrees with something Shakespeare said, to paraphrase Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt about in your psychologies and your sociologies and your biology classes and your chemistry classes and so on and so forth. See, our world now can't do things like explain evil. Our world cannot explain a lot of things because they've flattened the world. Today, as we look at this passage, it's a familiar passage. It involves demon possession or demonizing. It involves pigs dying and unfortunately not in our mouths afterwards. Um, We see this very familiar story. And there are two great temptations when we read stories like this. The one temptation is the one that is most common in our world. This is the one that goes, eh, this is just make-believe. This is just not that important. So I'm not going to even think about it. There is no supernatural realm. We'll just leave it aside. 
The other one that's not quite as popular but still has its adherence in our world are those who are way too into it. They're the ones that want to see all of the YouTube clips and they want to watch the documentaries and they want to watch the movies that are terrifying and they want to know all about demonology. See, C.S. Lewis had gotten it right when he said, these are the two most dangerous and opposite errors when it comes to the spiritual realm. Too much infatuation or denying its existence. So today, we're going to address the spiritual realm. We're going to talk about some of the aspects that are here. Now, there's going to be lots of questions, and there's going to be things that you're going to go, I don't know, what about, what about, what about? Now, the good news is, is that we've still got a long time in Matthew, and there's going to be many more encounters with demons, and more stuff will come out. Also, I can try to answer questions as best I can, but for today's text... We need to understand what's there and what it says and what it means to us. Because it really doesn't do us any good to walk out of here and knowing all about demons and not have an interaction with the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So today, that's our goal. So what's our big idea? Well, the big idea is that King Jesus has authority over the supernatural. King Jesus has authority over the supernatural. It's as simple as that. There is a supernatural, it exists, and King Jesus is in charge of it. King Jesus is in charge of it. So the outline for the passage is pretty basic. And I'm not going to lie, I borrowed it from somebody else because it was just once you see it, it's there and you can't get rid of it. Plus it's alliterated and I'm not good at that. So I'm going full Baptist right here. You're getting four, three points and they all have an F at the beginning. Brace yourself, all right? But don't expect it every week, I'm sorry. All right, the first one is we have fierce demons. And this we're going to see in verse 28. The next thing we see is we see a formidable Savior. We see this in verses 29 through 32. And then finally, we see a faithless crowd, verses 33 through 34. So this three points we're going to see, and they'll be up on the screen here in a minute, but as we walk through this, you're going to see that the whole focus of this passage is really not on the demons. It's on the one who casts them out. And ironically enough, the demons get all the, all the words. Christ only gets one, but yet he is the focus of the passage. So here we go. Fierce demons. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gardenans, Gardenans, however you say that, you say it fast and pretend you know what you're saying. Two demon-possessed men meet him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So this is a Gentile area. If you imagine the Sea of Galilee looks kind of like an um, avocado or a plum. It's just kind of this circular with a little knob at the top. To the right, to the east, is where we are now. Jesus is crossed to the other side. This is a very Gentile area. Not only is it a Gentile area, the place where he has landed is very rugged. It's very, very difficult terrain. Rocky, craggy, and very rough and kind of tough people. Which makes this even more amazing because what does it say? It says no one could pass by these demons, these demon-possessed people. The word there, demon, is the word divinity, which just simply means a spiritual being. And it says that they are fierce. That word means impossible to restrain. In other texts, in Mark and Luke, they both talk about this and they talk about how these men had been chained up and they were breaking the chains. They could not be bound. So before we get into this, we need to understand what does the Bible say about demons? 
What does the Bible say about demons? So what we're going to do is we're going to do what's called biblical theology of demons. So a biblical theology, what that means is we're going to trace through Scripture what, is, what, what are demons. And we're going to do this through the overarching storyline of Scripture. And you all know it because we do it every single Sunday. Every Sunday when we come together, we start our service off. Our first few songs are about creation. God made us. Then at the pastoral prayer, we turn to the fall, where we're pleading with God to fix things. Then through the sermon, all the way into the first song, we get into this idea of redemption. It's my job to point you to Christ. And then we sing about that, and then our final two songs are all about the restoration, getting right with the Lord because of the redemption. It's, it's actualizing what Jesus has done. So this is the storyline of the Bible. God started things, Genesis, right, and pointed back to. There was a fall. Then there's all the repercussions of the fall. They're pointing forward to the Redeemer. The Redeemer comes, and then there's the restoration. And we see all sorts of pictures of that, but we see it most clearly at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So using this picture, we can also see how demons fit into the picture. So creation. The first thing we see is that demons were created. Colossians 1.16, for by him, that's Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the first thing we see is they're created beings. Everything was created by Christ. So that's the first thing we see. So there's creation. The next thing we see is the fall. Some of these created beings decided to rebel. And when they rebelled, they claimed authority over the other pieces of creation, other people, other created beings, with the goal of taking them captive through worship. Look at Matthew 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. This is when Jesus is being tempted, and the devil takes him up on a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you will just worship me, I will give them all to you. Satan, as the, the head, as the, as the first of all demons, doesn't do anything different than all the rest. They say, worship me, worship anything other than God. Romans 1.25 says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So this is the modus operandi. This is the MO of demons, of these fallen spirits, is to get you to worship anything else. And the scary part is, is they sometimes get us to worship good things. Providing for your family is a good thing. It's a terrible God. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your grandkids, they're great. Praise the Lord. But they're terrible gods. See, the, 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 the way that the enemy works is to try to get us to focus on anything other than God. So there's the fall. Redemption. We see Colossians 2.15. It says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Christ's death on the cross destroyed the ability for them to do anything. It is gone. Christ has conquered them, putting them to shame, marching them through the city with the conquered people at the back, saying, look who I beat. The Word became flesh and conquered and set free. 
We are set free by what Christ did. And he conquered those beings. And then restoration. One day all the authorities in heaven and on earth, that's humans and everything else, are going to bow to Jesus Christ. Whether willingly or defiantly, they all bow. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until all has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we see they are made beings. They fell and they want to take more people with them. But Christ's death on the cross defeated them and eventually they will bow before him as his enemies. As it says, all will bow before him. And there's more to what will happen to them at the end of time, but that's not what this passage is about today. So you get the general flow of what demons are. See, we have this, we, we don't really, most of us really don't feel like we're too over enamored with, with demons. We're not looking for demons in every single thing. Most of the time, we kind of just push it aside. And part of that is, like I said, the flattening of our world. Part of it is, as well, is the shaming of people who believe anything as ridiculous as this. So says our world. See, in our post enlightenment culture, believing in demons is backwater. I mean, do you guys even use indoor plumbing kind of things? Like, are you still in the dark ages when they didn't understand anything? Which, by the way, what's interesting about the dark ages, this is totally freebie. It's just for you. Who named the dark ages? The Enlightenment did. You think that might have been, you know, propaganda? Yes, it was. Dark ages weren't as dark as the Enlightenment wanted to say, because the Enlightenment was saying, see how bad they were? We're so much better. So these dark ages, they had a lot of things right, as a matter of fact. And one of the things they got right was, there are spiritual beings. But today in our culture, it's, oh, you shouldn't be thinking that. As a matter of fact, what they'll say is, you're being cruel. If you think that every mental disorder, every physical disease, every single one has a demon behind it, you are shaming and ridiculing that person and it is cruel. And we would say, well, not every single one, but wouldn't it be a good idea if there's all sorts of options that we include all of them and not just say it must be a physical or a psychological thing? Could there be influences? Because that's what the Bible says. Jesus heals their infirmities. Oh, and he also casts out demons. So it's both. So in our culture, unfortunately, there's a binary, right? It's got to be one or the other. And we got to be right in the middle. I love how Richard Baxter put it. He said, there's a physical, there's a psychological, there's a moral, and then there might be a demonic. And what that means is there are influences on us, and we must be constantly comparing them to Scripture. The problem, though, is, is that because of the way our world is set up, the way they talk about demons, and then the way they shame us in talking about demons, we're falling right into the trap. And the trap is to just believe they're not there. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, where one senior demon named Screwtape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood. 
telling him how to be a good demon. And in it, he says, the number one way to keep people from doing anything for God and to get more and more control of them is to convince them that we don't exist. And by convincing them that we don't exist and there's something else, we can be right there going, did you think about this? Have you thought about that? And it makes our job very, very easy. Spiritual warfare is real. Now, I would have said that probably about two years ago when I was getting ready to become your pastor. But honestly, I have felt it since becoming your pastor. It is hard work to shepherd a flock because the enemy is constantly trying to tell you you're doing a terrible job, constantly trying to depress you, constantly trying to say you should just quit. And if you all haven't felt that in COVID times, you're you're lying to yourself because you all know that you have felt that same thing. Who's to say it's not a spiritual battle? Could be a physical thing, could be a spiritual thing, could be an emotional thing, but it's most definitely a thing. And keep all of that on the table. See, this this passage has some baggage, doesn't it? It says demon possession. And when we think of demon possession, we go right to what? We go to Hollywood. Hollywood can't get it right, right? Apparently, the only Christians in Hollywood are wearing black outfits with a little white collar right here. That's the only Christians. And apparently, there's this secret ritual book out there that we must use to cast out demons. And the way we know that they're demons is that the person's crawling up the wall, the head spins around, they're spewing out green stuff, and they speak Latin, right? As a matter of fact, that's nowhere in the Bible. Surprise, Hollywood got it wrong. See, the thing is, this, is, this translation is diomosini, which means to demonize or demonization. What that simply means is it's an influence. It's an influence. And as the person gives into that influence, the demon has more and more control. Demon possession just has so much that it's this unwilling participant that the demon has made its home inside and it's this Latin-speaking, ectoplasmic-spewing thing. And see, that's not what this is talking about. This idea to have a demon. See, the goal of demons, the goal of the devil, the goal of these evil spirits is to get us to get our eyes off of Christ. Now, does that mean every single time that we are not looking to Christ for something, that it's a demon? No, our flesh does a pretty good job of that on its own. But that's what we need to understand is the role of the demon. This is not a spatial thing, what they're talking about in this passage. It's not saying that the demon has taken up residence, but it is saying the demon has influenced these men so much that you couldn't tell the difference between the demon and the man. Because the more you submit to the demons and their agenda, the more control they have over you. But ironically, as much as we all go to the demon possession as like this big deal, it's actually not really their main work. The main work that demons do, there's three things in the Bible over and over and over again that they do. Number one is they deceive. And they do this through temptation. Either causing something to be a temptation for you or by trying to influence you a certain way. That's the first one. The second one is accusation. The best way to understand this is that they come along and say, you don't measure up. You know what? You don't deserve this. There's no way God would love you. You need to work on some stuff. Do these things, and then God will love you. Accusation. 
And then the third one is fear. Fear. And a lot of times this fear is based on God's not going to provide. Or this situation is too big for him. Or there's no way out of this. I don't think it's a mistake that this comes right after the storm. When Jesus casts out the storm, he says, be gone. That word is the word cast out. It's the same word that we see here. It's the same word we see elsewhere for casting out demons. That fear that they were experiencing. Was it a demon running the storm? I don't know. But what I do know was it was playing right into their hands. The disciples were going, oh, we're going to die. God, you're not doing your job. See, the destruction of God's creation is the goal of the demons. And us, as the pinnacle of creation, are the biggest target. Some will say, well, but don't we have authority over demons as believers? I think we get that wrong, right? It's not the right question. See, they don't have authority over you because Christ has all the authority. That's the thing, is that that the world and demons and just everything is pointing to, well, we need to have authority over them so we can cast them out. We have no authority unless we are what? In Christ. Our authority comes from His destruction, His destroying the powers. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Him. So demons, they still exist today. They promote evil, create hardship, but God has conquered them. And as believers, we can share in that victory because we are in Christ. Remember what Ephesians 2 says. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised Him up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. We are right there with Him. We are not put in there because we're something special. We're not the varsity team. We're not the top of the line. We are the ones that Christ scooped up and have now put in the heavenly places. So our ability to stand is based on His strength, not ours. Look at this. This is one, again, the, 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 the armor of God. And we know this one, and we've heard people say, you must put on the armor of God, and I totally agree with that. But don't miss where it starts. Look at Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Not the strength of your might, not the strength of your ability, not the strength of your quiet time, not the strength of your Bible memorization, but in His strength. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now the devil comes and he wants to destroy us, but he can't because Christ is stronger. Christ has authority. And lastly, We are encouraged to pray. This is also in Ephesians right after the armor. And this is a place where we struggle. And we've talked about this before many times. A few weeks ago, I challenged you all to to pray, especially when it comes to praying for what we're doing right here and right now. Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We must constantly be taking it to the Lord. Constantly taking it to the Lord. That is our tapping into His strength. See, what I find is really interesting with us Christians is it's very difficult for us to believe in demons, but we like to believe in angels. 
find it hard to believe in Satan, but we do like to believe in Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. They're there. It's a part of it. And I just, again, I want to remind you, it's, it's through Christ that we can stand. This morning as I was coming to church, I put on some worship music, which I like to do, and I just hit the random shuffle. And the first song that came on was this song, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. It's a phenomenal song. It has this line, To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. See, the demons and the devil have been defeated, not through me. Not through my ability to stand, but through Christ in me. I am strong because of the one who is there with me, not because of my own strength, not because of the power of my prayer, not because any of that, but because of Christ. So let's get our eyes off the demons. This is it. We're now moving into the formidable Savior, because this is the point of this passage. The formidable Savior, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now this sounds like a petition, but it's actually an assault. The way it's worded, they are saying, How dare you? You're in the wrong place. Now you compare this to the leper who goes and says, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. These guys are saying, This isn't your spot. What are you doing here? Travis told a story, or made up a story, that I thought was perfect for this. These demons have had free run of this area. It's kind of like the the shady bartender who's got this bar that's kind of off the beaten track, and he just kind of is off doing his own thing and selling this and doing that, and all of a sudden a well-known FBI agent comes in to have a drink, and the bartender goes, what's going on? Why are you here? With the idea of, wait a second, this isn't where you frequent. You're here for some reason. Is it a raid? Are you undercover? Are you here to arrest me? What's going on? See, this is what's happening with these demons. They're in Gentile territory. They're on a path that no one would go on because of them. And they're in a graveyard. So they're around dead bodies. This is the most unclean of the unclean out there. And Jesus makes a beeline to them. One author writes, He is the firstborn of hell that knows Christ and yet hates Him and will not be subject to Him. They are not submitting themselves to Christ. Instead, they're saying, how dare you come to our place? It's not our time yet. The demons know the truth. They know where they're going to end up, and yet they still rebel. This uh, comment on the time, torment us before the time, that was back to that 1 Corinthians 15 passage where it says, He will put them under His feet and destroy them. See, demons know their ultimate fate. They've been in the presence of God as fallen angels. They have been in the presence of God. And when they were in the presence of God, they knew they weren't God and they knew that God was going to win let alone the fact that they could read their Bibles too if they had them, but they miss the point because ultimately it's about Christ. Their judgment is coming. See, they recognize Jesus rightly. They have good theology. They recognize that Jesus is the judge and he will punish the wicked. Sometimes their theology is better than some Christians out there. Look what happens next. Now, a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. 
And the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. It's quite telling that these demons hate and loathe everything about Jesus, yet they are powerless to do anything without his permission. So why do they go to the pigs? Well, could be that they hate all of creation and they just want to destroy something else. Or there could be another one. It could be to make Jesus look bad. Verse 32, he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Jesus says one word. That's all it takes. Even with all of the mythology and the Hollywoodizing, no Latin, no rituals, no nothing, it's go. Or even better, move. You guys have that? You have parents, you have that control sometimes of your kids where you're just stop and they're like, and they stop breathing because they're not sure what it is that you told them to stop. That's, that's the power, but even more so with Christ. One author writes, it was normal for exorcists to prattle on and on, finding out the name of the demon, the territory of the demon, and then trying various incantations. Jesus says, go, move. I'm reminded of the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fell him. Jesus has that kind of power. And that's the point here. The demons try to throw many, many words to try to get Jesus to do what he, they want. Jesus just goes, I only need one. The demons enter the pigs. They drive the, de- the pigs into the sea. See, the demons are going, if we can't destroy men, we'll destroy anything. Their nature is clearly on display. Because if you think about it, Satan and his demons, they're spiritual kamikazes. They know that they're going to die. They know that judgment is coming. And their goal is to take as many of the pinnacles of God's creation, mankind, and take them with them. They don't believe they can win. Look at these guys. They're saying, oh, is it time for the judgment? I didn't think it was ready yet. I don't think it's time yet. They want to take as many with them as possible. One preacher said... This killing of the pigs was to make Jesus look bad. They didn't give him any gratitude. Instead, they killed the pigs so that Jesus would be blamed. See, we see two things here. We see one, we see that the destruction is the goal of the enemy. The second thing is, we see that these people put their hope in their possessions. And we'll see that here in a minute. D.A. Carson says, they preferred pigs to person, which means they prefer swine to savior. The battle is over. Our victory is for sure. It's all about being in Christ. So this entire chapter, all of chapter 8, has been about Jesus' authority. It's been Jesus has authority over this, Jesus has authority over that. And right here, he has authority over the supernatural. We did see he had authority over sickness earlier. And we also saw him have authority over the weather. So this final supernatural, if we think about it, When it comes to diseases, we get medicine, we get treatment, we get surgery. When it comes to weather, we can always move or go shelter inside. But when it comes to the supernatural, there's no outrunning the supernatural world. There's no safe space in the spiritual realm. Jesus is showing, as a matter of fact, I did flatten the world. 
Everything is mine in this world, and I control all of it. So how do the people respond? In spite of all of this information they've been given, they are faithless. We see the faithless crowd. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, what is this especially thing? This is kind of a weird way of of explaining it, but it's probably better to say including the demon-possessed men. See, what had happened was these herdsmen were in charge of the herd of pigs, and Mark and Luke, it tells us it was about 2,000 of them. So this is a big chunk of change that these herdsmen are in charge of. So as soon as the pigs run into the sea, they go, oh my gosh, we're in big trouble. They're going to blame us. What were you doing running them towards the sea, you morons? So they run to the town and they say, hey, 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 the pigs died. And you know what? It's all this guy Jesus' fault. Well, what do you mean it was Jesus' fault? Well, he cast out this demon and those two guys that had been demon-possessed for the last seven or eight years and their families missed them. Yeah, okay, that, that was part of it. But he put the demons in the pigs and the pigs died. You see, the focus here is that these men are trying to defend themselves. They're saying, listen, it's not our fault. It's Jesus' fault. Don't string us up. Don't kill us. Don't run us out of town. Run him out of town. It's not our fault. Isn't it ironic how people that are so into the flesh, that are so in the thrall of the way the world thinks, that they will, they will take 2,000 pigs and see as more valuable than two men and their families on every single case. It's disgusting. Verse 34, and behold. Now, I want to point out something to you that I kind of left hanging throughout. This word, and behold, is in this passage three times. It's kind of like, surprise, this is Matthew saying, new thing, this is unexpected, right? So we see it, right? Early on in verse 29, Jesus walks up to the demons. We're expecting what? We're expecting Jesus is going to go, boom, demons gone. But instead, behold, they do all the talking. Then we move to verse 32. Jesus casts the, pi- the demons into the pigs, and surprise, the pigs kill themselves. And then lastly, right here, we see, and behold, the city comes out. We're going, they're going to repent. And then they don't. Surprise. See, of all the miracles in the chapter 8 we've looked at, this is the first time we get to see what the crowds think. And the crowds do the opposite of what you would expect. Matthew is letting us in that we should not be thinking like these people. See, there's two things at play here. I, I spent a lot of time this week going, why would they not want Jesus there? Why would they not want Jesus there? And I came up with two reasons. One is that they're fearful of Jesus. He is an unknown commodity. He has power beyond their control. See, one of the nice things about the gods of the Gentiles in this area was their gods were very controllable. You do this, he does that. You don't do this, he does that. This Jesus comes along and throws it all into confusion. The second thing we see is we see love of property. These pigs would have been worth thousands and thousands of dollars, and yet they were destroyed in an instant. Whatever the reason is, what we are seeing here is we're seeing what Jesus taught earlier. Remember he said, there will be people who will build their house on the sand. Is there anything more sand-like than 2,000 pigs? that run into the water and are dead, if that's what you built your life on, that stinks. 
Not only that, but notice it says the entire town. What did Jesus say? He said, wide is the road that leads to destruction. See, Jesus, Matthew is putting these in here to illustrate what Jesus has already taught. So not only do we have all of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're like, that's pretty smart. He did a pretty good job. Matthew says, look, here's examples of it. Here are the examples. The wide road. Everybody wants on it. So when we look at this fear, we see Jesus is not containable by these people. So of course they would fear them. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 22, it said, let the dead bury the dead. The people in this city are sending away life so that they can stay burying the dead. And we say, how sad is that? They knew. I mean, I'm looking at it and going, what is this town thinking? And all of them, every single one, doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. How sad is that? It's just as sad as a disciple who decides to not join Jesus and instead go and bury a family member, to bury the dead, marking the time until someone dies like we talked about a few weeks ago. I also think about it too. One of the things that that comes up on a regular basis is thinking, if only Jesus would do this right in front of me right now, I would believe. Have you all said that at some point? I know I have. Like if God gave me a burning bush, I would totally change things around. If Jesus would just show up and I could talk to him and he could tell me what to do, I would totally do it. You know, honestly, we would find some excuse. Oh, I had this daydream and it was so realistic. Or I ate some bad pizza last night and this was a dream. We'll find some way to do it. See, even when Jesus is right in front of them doing a miracle that they can't explain, they want nothing to do with him. See, fear is driven out by this man, this God-man. What manner of man is this? He is the God of the universe. Yes, we are to be fearful of God. We're supposed to have awe of Him. But like having the biggest kid on the playground as your best friend, He's there to empower us through His awe. So we are His because He is for us. The next thing we see, another reason why they kicked Him out was the loss of property. Really, Jesus is all about upsetting our lives. He doesn't leave us where we're at. He doesn't let us continue on the same path. The people must have been thinking, a few more exorcisms like this and our economy is going in the tank. So are we concerned with property or programs instead of human beings? Remember, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are eternal beings. Everything else on this earth is it's, it's fire starter. It's going to go away. It's the humans that matter. Daniel Durrani in his commentary said, there are people who don't want toddlers in their homes because they don't want them to drool on their tables or touch their antiques. They have not learned the lesson of the pigs. There are people who want, will not spend money or use their property to meet human needs because they are deeply afraid of depleting their assets. They have not learned the lesson of the pigs. The lesson of the pigs is that people are more important than possessions. And I think we see this throughout. Do you remember another time where we had some angelic being negotiating with God? I'm reminded of Job chapter 1. If you remember the story of Job, Job was a righteous man. He was a wealthy man. And the devil came before the Lord and asked for permission to tempt Job by taking away everything. All of his possessions, except for his wife. And his health, all of it, gone. 
Would Job choose to love God even without all of the blessings? Or would he choose to curse him and go a different way? This is where the villagers are. They're right in this spot. Jesus has come into the Gentile world. He's shown he has power over all supernatural. Doesn't matter who they are. He is the great deliverer. And are you going to choose your pigs or are you going to choose the Savior? And this is where they are. Are you going to choose your prosperity over his love? Your money over Jesus? Your resources over divine power? And behold, they choose death over life. Money is a terrible God. Possessions are a terrible God. They take and take and take, and they don't give life. But the God of the universe, incarnate as Jesus Christ, gives life. So there's four truths that we see at the end of this passage. The first one is, is that Jesus is king, the one and only son of God. That's clear. We've seen this throughout chapter 8. Number two, Jesus is triumphant over unclean spirits. He is in charge of them. They do not do anything without his permission. Third, Jesus frees those that are captive and gives hope to those who are hopeless, Jew and Gentile. And then finally, Jesus demands a choice. Are you going to choose possessions? Are you going to choose security? Are you going to choose these things? Or are you going to choose him? So the villagers, they fail the test. And Matthew reports it. So that we go, am I going to fail this test? He's given us the wide road. Everybody's on it. Everybody else is loving money and possessions. Why can't I? Jesus says, one of the nice things about the road to hell is that it's wide and it's well populated. The thing about the road to heaven is it's narrow and few find it, but you get eternal life. When you build your house on the rock, it stands the storms. When you build your house on the sand, the storms destroy. This is what he is teaching. Disaster, disease, and demons. Another alliteration. Don't expect more. This chapter shows that even though we think we can control diseases via science and medicine, there is one who controls all of them, and that's Christ. Disasters, we try to avoid them. We try to, to, to go somewhere where they're not supposed to be, and then we're shocked when something happens. But Jesus is in control. Supernatural beings that we go, la, 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 they're not there. Jesus says, they're there, and I'm in control of them. Every single one of these, through Jesus' actions in this chapter, we see Jesus is in control. Jesus is the Son of God with authority over disease, disaster, and demons. There is nothing in this universe that is not under his sovereign control. So if you are in Christ, you are the most secure person in the world. Our security is not based on our big house. Our security is not based on a retirement plan, not on a good job, on the stability, the stability of our economy, the security of our nation, or who the president is. We are secure because we are in the palm of the hand of the God of the universe. The one who has authority over it all. 
See, God is going to provide for you if you are his in the midst of sin and demons and natural disasters and various diseases. So then we can come to what verse 26 said, which is, why are you fearful, you of little faith? And the answer was, you hadn't put your trust in the Savior. So put your trust in the Savior today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Heavenly Father, thank you for putting it here. Thank you for putting it here on this day at this time in this way. Lord, I pray now that as we let these thoughts percolate in our head and and swirl around in there, that, Lord, you would allow them to take root and grab a hold of us. Lord, you are a good God, and you care for us, and you have authority over every single being. Allow us to submit to that authority, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time or the thousandth time. Lord, help us to submit more and more to you. Thank you, Lord, for being so loving and so good. In Jesus' name, amen.